This program is brought to you by Preserve Gold, the number one precious metals IRA provider. Call 855-962-3322. A joint effort against economic coercion from China. Seven leaders from some of the globe's most powerful nations met in Japan on Friday, seeking to reduce dependence on China while maintaining ties with the world's second largest economy. Many also are urging Beijing to use its influence for good to bring the Russia-Ukraine conflict to a close. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. A united strategy against China's economic coercion. That's the top agenda for the Group of Seven Summit this year. The annual forum starts in Japan on Friday. Its participants are the world's seven most powerful democracies, the U.S., U.K., Canada, France, Germany, Italy, and Japan. Entity's Sam Wong has more. Member nations of the Group of Seven Forum drafted a communique aiming to maintain relations with China while acting in their national interests. A stable and constructive relation with China is in our mutual interest. The EU is firm on our values. We will keep voicing our concerns on human rights, whether it is in Hong Kong, in Xinjiang, or in Tibet. Known as the world's manufacturing hub, China remains a crucial trade partner to the G7 countries. But leaders are looking for ways to counter Beijing's control over global supply chains without completely cutting ties. The seven nations are also pushing to diversify energy supplies by working together. They're aiming to secure sources of critical minerals, which China currently dominates. The U.S. depends heavily on China for these materials. Aside from the U.S., the European Union wants to be processing 40 percent of the critical minerals it consumes by 2030, drastically reducing dependence on China. It now relies on China for more than 90 percent of minerals essential for wind power generation and batteries. With the ongoing conflict between Russia and Ukraine, nations are calling on China to use its influence to broker peace. Given its role in the international community and the size of its economy, China has a special responsibility in the world. It has to play by international rules, and we call on China to press Russia to stop its military aggression. Worth noting, China is also a key trading partner to Russia, and Moscow has increased reliance on its communist neighbor as Western sanctions cripple its economy. During a meeting with Japanese Prime Minister on Thursday, U.S. President Biden condemned Russia without mentioning China. Stand up for the shared values, including supporting great people in Ukraine as they defend their sovereign territory, and holding Russia accountable for its criminal aggression. But the two leaders did discuss ways to bolster defense cooperation and counter Chinese aggression. As the host of the summit, regional security will be front and center for Japan. The nation is looking to up its defense spending amid China's military buildup in the South Pacific. Beijing, on the other hand, urged Japan not to turn the summit into a political show against the communist regime. The final version of the communique will be released on Sunday. Sam Wong, NTD News, New York. The global efforts to counter the Chinese Communist Party are expanding. U.S. lawmakers are visiting London to press for a tougher line on China. And just one day before, the U.K. and Japan signed a landmark defense deal targeting aggression from the Chinese regime. NTD's Jane Worrell has more for us. A group of U.S. lawmakers are on a three-day visit to London to push for a harder line on China. 
They're led by Mike Gallagher, the Republican chair of the US Congress Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party. And the visit comes at a time when they're increasing their focus on policies that counter the coercion of the Chinese Communist Party on a global scale. Now, as a major ally of the US, Britain has been critical of Beijing's human rights, but has recently shown some signs of closer engagement with the Chinese regime. A day earlier, however, the UK and Japan signed a new agreement on the Indo-Pacific region. Called the Hiroshima Accord, it strengthens the two countries' ties on security and innovation. Here's a reminder of what the British Prime Minister said about the Indo-Pacific region ahead of their meeting. We're increasing our engagement in the region to work with allies like Australia, like Japan, to ensure that the Pacific region does remain free and open. We don't want to see any change to the status quo. Well, the agreement aims to improve semiconductor supply chains, as well as the supply of critical minerals, which are used in mobile phones and everyday electronics, a market that China dominates. And the accord says that the country's position on Taiwan remains unchanged. Jane Worrell, NTD News, London. While G7 leaders gather in Japan, the CCP is holding a summit of its own. Communist regime leader Xi Jinping kicked off the China Central Asia Summit on Thursday. An unveiled grand development plan worth $3.8 billion for the region. The two-day summit welcomes five Central Asian countries to the discussion table. The CCP views them as critical to its ambitions in the region. Evelyn Lee with NTD Good Morning spoke to Gregory Copley, president of the International Strategic Studies Association, about what the talks mean for us. First, for some context, can you please just quickly give us an idea what leaders will discuss at the summit and what's Xi's underlying goal? Xi's underlying goal is to take over where the Russians cannot uh, regain their dominance in Central Asia. The Central Asian states, having just escaped more than a century of Russian and then Soviet domination are not about to allow themselves to be brought back under the control of either China or uh, Russia. Uh, but the uh, but, uh, General Secretary Xi Jinping wants to ensure that the Chinese investments in Central Asia are repaid because China is running out of money. It also wants to see uh, a buildup of the infrastructure across Central Asia, which is critical to the PRC's ability to escape the navies of the Western and maritime powers. So you could have internal lines of communication across Central Asia to Russia and to Europe. Uh, this is going to be very difficult. The Central Asian states are themselves trying to find a way to avoid trading through Russia or China uh, and finding other ways to get uh, to the international markets. So this is going to be very difficult. And it's an insult. Uh, by uh, Xi Jinping to President uh, Vladimir Putin of Russia because, I was going because to ask China about is this. trying to take over. So mm. I'm interested because the countries invited are all countries that were formerly controlled by Russia. Now, what does it mean? Because China is now making alliances in Russia's backyard. What's What would be Russia's reaction to that? Well, Russia is fighting for regained control of the Central Asian states. It's not succeeding. The Central Asian states have turned from using Russian as their second language to using English as their second language. Most of them have turned away from using uh, even Cyrillic in the uh, writing of their own languages and have, turn, have turned to Latinizing their script. So this is a real insult to Moscow. Uh, they still trade heavily with Moscow, but are not about to fall back under Moscow's control.
Mm. Now, what will those strengthening ties? What would it mean um, if they had the strengthening ties for the G, for the West and G7 countries? Well, the West needs uh, the, the trade with Central Asia, not just from an economic point of view, but also to give hope to Central Asia and also to create this great geopolitical advantage uh, in the middle of the Russia-China-Iran uh, alliance. This is critical, and yet the, we see the Western powers doing almost nothing uh, to bolster their position in Central Asia. Uh, we've seen President of Uzbekistan taking a lot of initiatives. He was in Germany just recently. Uh, there's a great uh, attempt uh, to boost Central Asian diplomacy with the West, but the Western states have done nothing. They've sent the uh, head of USAID, the aid program uh, leader, to Uzbekistan, but that's about all. We, we're not seeing a concerted recognition in the West that Central Asia is the key to the West's uh, advantage in the new Cold War, which has already begun. Wow. Well, thank you so much for breaking all this down for us, Gregory Copley. I appreciate it. Thank you. Beijing and Washington edging back to the negotiating table. Relations between the two sank to a dangerous low after the spy balloon incident in February. What triggered the sudden change on the Chinese side? Two experts shed light on what's happening. China is looking for a potential meeting between Xi Jinping and President Joe Biden set for November at the APEC CEO summit. That's according to a Wall Street Journal projection from last week. The article noted recent encounters between top Chinese and U.S. officials. These contacts appear to be icebreakers between the two world powers. After the U.S. downed a Chinese spy balloon in February, Chinese Defense Minister declined a request for talks with Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. Beijing also warned it will fight back over the Taiwanese president's trip to California in April. Why the sudden attitude adjustment? An expert said Beijing's rejecting the talks was simply to stress test the Biden administration. President Biden didn't stop the curbs on Chinese microchips and investment. And there's version 2.0 of trade restrictions against China. Beijing's goal of stress testing falls short, so it must return to dialogue with the U.S. Another commentator said China's shift is driven by its loss and influence in the Indo-Pacific region. Countries like South Korea and the Philippines used to rely on China for their economies and on the U.S. for their security. Now they're starting to take sides and draw closer to Washington. In particular, they turn to confront the CCP on core issues like Taiwan. Analysts suggest a third reason, concerning Beijing's failed attempts to alienate the U.S. and its European allies. These efforts, meant to revive China's economy, which is still reeling from the effects of the nation's zero-COVID-19 policy. A few months ago, China bypassed the U.S. to engage with its European allies. It invited French President Macron and the President of the European Commission. But these visits yielded no real change in Europe's China approach. That's why it now veers toward direct dialogue with the U.S. to work out the best way forward for economic recovery. Experts predict no major turn in Washington's China policy. That is, unless fundamental changes occur in China's leadership. Taiwan is still waiting for an important invitation, but the island's foreign minister says he hasn't given up hope. Taiwan hopes to attend an international forum called the World Health Assembly. Even though we still haven't received an invitation letter for the assembly this year, we haven't given up and continue to go through various channels to clearly express our appeal to the WHO 
that it should invite Taiwan to participate in the assembly as an observer. The forum functions as the globe's highest health body and is run by nearly 200 member states. It also governs the World Health Organization. Taiwan joined as an observer to the meeting in the past, but the island hasn't been invited since 2017. One major factor for the missing invite is pressure to exclude the island from Beijing. The Chinese Communist Party claims the island as part of its territory, despite never having ruled it. Because of that, it staunchly opposes formal Taiwan participation in any kind of foreign diplomacy. The fact that China keeps saying that it represents Taiwan in the international space is unspeakable, and we, the people of Taiwan, will not accept this. I will repeat here once again, only the democratically elected government of Taiwan can represent Taiwan's people in international organizations. Taiwan says that its exclusion has gotten in the way of the global fight against COVID-19. On Thursday, the island's foreign ministry announced it would send a delegation to Geneva for the event anyway, noting it will try via any possible channel to convey that Taiwan should be invited as an observer. At the same time, international support is growing for Taiwan's participation. A joint statement pledged support from the U.S., U.K., Australia, Canada, Germany, Japan, Czechia and Lithuania. Taiwan revealed that several diplomatic allies and friendly countries have scheduled bilateral meetings on the sidelines of the meeting. The support we are getting from administrations and parliaments of other countries is steadily increasing, even better than in the past. The World Health Assembly is scheduled in Geneva, Switzerland from May 21st to the 30th. Former surgeon Enver Totti warns against horrific crimes in China after his own first-hand encounter with forced organ harvesting. At World Falun Dafa Day in London, he spoke in support of Falun Gong practitioners who have been persecuted for their faith in China for more than two decades. Here's his story. This is a quite, you know, unfortunate thing. Falun Gong practitioners, they only practice what they are believing. And that is um, compassion, forbearance, truthfulness. That is the uh, modern value. And that is basic human uh, value. And that, to practice that, uh, to be a good citizen or to be a good um, uh, people in the society, it is a good thing to bring this social uh, morality into high value. But since CCP is against it, they don't want you to, you to live in the happiness. That is how they, they do everything to punish whoever practice Falun Gong. And uh, all other um, faces who is not um, in favor of communism. That is sad things. And uh, a lot, the existence of the Communist Party on, on Earth is a crime of our humanity. We should eliminate this communist, communism and the Chinese Communist Party. How do you feel being here in London today where we can speak freely about the human rights situation in China? Again, it's a feel sorry and uh, feel I have to do something. If we don't do anything, we just won't, uh, watching them 
dropped fell and fell into the hell, and that is crime in uh, in front of God. So we have a moral um, duty not to only save ourselves but save millions others as possible. Okay, well, Mbatochi, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Coming up, how does the U.S. compare to China in naval power? And do Chinese fishing fleets pose a threat to American waters? We hear from Brent Sadler, a former Pentagon Navy staff member and a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He's also the author of a new book, U.S. Naval Power in the 21st Century, a new strategy for facing the Chinese and Russian threat. More from him after the break, here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. What advantages would China have over U.S. naval power in actual combat? And why do Chinese fishing fleets pose a threat to the U.S.? We tap Brent Sadler, senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation on naval warfare and advanced technology, for answers. He's also the author of a new book, U.S. Naval Power in the 21st Century, a new strategy for facing the Chinese and Russian threat. Brent Sadler, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Uh, thank you for having me on. And Brent, zooming in on naval power, it seems just in terms of ships alone, China has surpassed the U.S. So how do those numbers play out if we end up in an actual kinetic war? Yeah, so there's, there's, the, shi there's, there's the ships that you have on hand, the munitions that are on board at, on day zero when a fight starts. The other question is, how quickly can you rearm them? How many weapons do you have? And we're learning this lesson uh, again with uh, Ukraine as we try to struggle to get more munitions there. Then the third question is, as ships get damaged, uh, how fast can you turn them around and get them repaired and back into the fight? Uh, sadly, on all three of those, the Chinese have an advantage. Uh, they have an advantage in numbers. They also have an advantage of the home game because they're playing closer. So even though ship for ship, you know, the quality question goes to the United States and firepower, the Chinese are a lot closer to home, so that's mitigated. Their ability to, to load up and replace munitions, they have a vast industrial base, uh, so I think they've got an edge on us there. I think we've been spending years on quietly building up our munitions production capability, but we're not there yet for the type of fight that we would be in with China. Then lastly, on shipyards. Um, China's got massive capacity there. One of their commercial shipyards has more capacity than all of the shipbuilding in the United States. It's a very sad testament of how far we've allowed our shipbuilding industry to fall. Um, but there could be some interesting ways to solve that with floating dry docks like we did in World War II. Uh, but we've got a lot of work to do to catch up and to be where we need to be on that front. And to catch up, what should the U.S. be doing? Well, I think the first thing is we know what we need to build uh, ship-wise and stable ship designs like Arleigh Burke Flight 3 destroyers. The first one of those has just started being produced now, but it's a design that's 30 plus years old. We also know we need Virginia-class nuclear submarines. We know we need those in number. We have a frigate design that's new but stable. So first thing is go ahead and purchase all the ships that you know you're going to buy in the next five years and get the money into the shipbuilders and ship the risk to them so that they can start making capital investments to grow their workforce, to grow their shipbuilding capacity, which we're going to need if we get into a fight to repair those same ships in a war. So that's, that's the easy solution right now. Politically challenging, 
legislatively also challenging because it would require removing out from the defense budget, which is massive, the shipbuilding one, because you're talking a bill of about $150 billion for 45 ships that we know we need in the next five years. And Brent, when we look at China's Navy or naval presence, they also have a massive fishing fleet, mm. which seems to be part of their military militia. So how does that play in? How are these fishing boats a threat? So it, it changes from region to region. There's three arenas with the maritime militia that, I, that I'm very keen on watching. The one that's most notable is the South China Sea and a very worn out approach. Uh, they're starting to basically come to the end of their effectiveness where they use the maritime militia to harass the Filipino fishermen, the Malaysians, and then they keep a Chinese Coast Guard vessel nearby, and of course, a naval vessel even just a little further away than the Coast Guard. Uh, the potential for them playing the same thing with their fishing fleets in the Gulf of Guinea off of Western Africa, where they, are, they have been accused and caught with illicit fishing, uh, but more importantly, you may recall about a year or so ago, there was a large fishing fleet, several hundred Chinese fishing vessels off of Galapagos Islands. And the, the thought was that they were going inside the, the EEZ there and poaching the fishing. And so we have massive waters that we're responsible for, U.S. waters, in our own economic exclusive zones that the, these Chinese fishing fleets, if they so choose, if they haven't already, could be poaching in our waters. And then if they've got maritime militia, they'll push back on any Coast Guard presence that might show up. Which show, by the way, the Coast Guard doesn't have the capacity to match these Chinese fishing fleets. So some people might just be like, oh, these are fishing fleets, right? What threat do they pose? But what threat do they pose? Well, two things. One, they, they pose a physical uh, threat to our fishermen uh, and our partners. Uh, they do and they have harassed, they have stolen catches, uh, they've actually poured salt water into the gas tanks, they've actually taken the water, fresh water, drinking water, to try to force these, these fishermen back, but it also puts them at physical risk. There's been shootings. There's a lot that happens day to day at sea in the South China Sea that we just don't see in our news, but it's occurring on a day to day basis. Uh, that could happen in American waters if we're not careful. And so there's that, that element. The other, more insidious, is that the Chinese are running kind of an insurgency against the rules-based order, what, what proper uh, maritime behaviors are, what's legal at sea. They're changing it, and they're doing it through these illicit means of the maritime militia. And that could change the way that states behave. It also could change the way states view freedom of navigation. And that's a core principle of American prosperity, and it is a national interest that we protect. And on that note, what steps should the U.S. or other freedom-loving countries be taking? Well, I think, so one of the most effective right now is to expose Chinese behaviors at sea. So the, for the last few years, the U.S. and now the Philippines have been putting media on board their, their Coast Guard vessels and even some of their fishing vessels to document what's going on, the actual behavior of the Chinese. That needs to continue. It needs to spread to the Central and South Pacific, and it also needs to spread to the Gulf of Guinea and off of West Africa to sh start to show that this is a pattern behavior not localized to the South China Sea. Brent Sadler, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. That's all for today's China In Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus.ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you soon.